0: this morning. It's so glad to see you. I have a lot of work to do, and I'm going to skip all the intros and formalities. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to grab it, and let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, We have been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to pause for just a couple of weeks uh, just so that I can talk about what our role is in the church. Um, As we are growing, as we are kind of growing, not just in in growth here, but as we are now a year old, over a year old, we need to figure out, make sure everybody's on the same page about who we are as a church, what does this look like for us to be a church that knows Jesus and makes him known here in Cedar City. Uh, We want to see the gospel uh, penetrate and infiltrate our culture. And so what does that mean for us What does that mean for me to be a part of a church? So glad you asked. Paul is going to give us an incredible answer this morning. It is quite a few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So read along with me if you have it. We're going to pick it up in verse 12, I think. For just as the body is one and has many members, for all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, and would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If That would be a very terrifying thing. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Uh, One more time, let's pray over the reading of God's word and the remainder of our time here uh, together. Um, Holy Father, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your kindness. We thank you for um, the song that we'll sing on and on together with you in eternity that you are holy and that you are righteous, and that you are just, and that you are worthy of everything that we have. Lord, I pray that although it was my voice that spoke, it was your word that we heard, God. So sanctify us in your word. Help us to grow more in who you would have us to be, recognizing our identity is found only in you and you alone. God, we pray that As we leave this room, we would say how glorious and gracious King Jesus is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our focus this morning is going to be eventually on the matter of the church or the matter of the body of Christ. I say eventually because I'm going to fill in some blanks and kind of describe to you uh, the theme or one of the divine purposes that God has given us which is the church, and I want to answer a question what our role is in the church. We're going to see that God has designed our bodies and the design of our bodies as a model for understanding our lives together as we continue to grow as we continue to ask this question, what is my role in all of this? The church is a people. It's a community of people who owe their existence. They owe their solidarity. They owe their distinctiveness to one thing, and that is to the call of God. And if we miss that, we've missed the foundational element of God, of how God is determined from all eternity to have a distinct people who are the called ones. The church is not a human invention, but it is a divine institution. And we need to look back through the beginning of time in order to understand the significance of the church and the significance of why this is so important and and look outside of ourselves for just a moment to see how great and how divine what you and I are a part of How great that really is. And we see in Genesis, there's the beginning of the Bible. We find that God calls out Abraham. He calls Abraham, this guy who we've called the father of many nations, Jesus, son of Abraham, Isaac, right? The God of Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. This guy should have a familiar ring to you. God calls Abraham out of his homeland, out of Ur and the Chaldeans, and he calls his family from Haran, and he calls them to another country, and he says to them, as you obey me, as you obey my call, and as you go where I'm asking you to go, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Blessed, not blessed. Now, anybody reading the Bible, anybody who hears this, with an ounce of intelligence, would probably begin to ask questions. What does this mean? What does this mean that you're calling me out of my land of comfort into a place where you're not even going to tell me? What does this, oh God, mean that you're going to make my descendants far greater than I can imagine? Does it It's an interesting question that as you read through scriptures to ask these types of questions. Long story short, because I don't have a lot of time to get into this, um, God fulfills and begins to fulfill this promise, this Abraham covenant, by giving him a son through Isaac. Isaac then continues with Jacob, and from this, God is beginning this method of operation to call people unto himself then we find Moses, who is a descendant of Jacob, stand in human history as he is called out by God as one of God's chosen people to stand before the tyranny of Pharaoh and declare to Pharaoh to let the people of God go out of slavery. And from here, Moses leads the people from the tyranny and the the iron fist of Pharaoh And thus, they begin the journey. God then begins, and he switches from this covenant of a promise to now giving them a law. The law was given to the people so that they would understand the way in which God would want them to live. Moses writes, uh, Genesis, Moses is the writer of Exodus, and he's writing to a people who have been enslaved under the iron fist of Pharaoh. Do they know how to live what is correct way of life? No, they've been a slave their whole way, their whole life, so Moses then gets the voice from the Lord, and he gives them the law and this there's there's this new way of living, and from the law we now get um this this incredible message from the Lord in exodus nineteen four just just highlight this in your head if you can. Um, this is what the word of God says. This is what you are to tell the house of Jacob, that you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I have done to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, this is right after the law is given, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession, and all through the whole, and although the whole earth is mine. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's so important to remember that verse, remember that line. You will be a holy people, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. We'll be returning to that idea in just a moment. After this covenant is then ratified by the law, God then allows the people to experience the very presence of who God is and he does this through the means of a tent and then through a tabernacle, then through a, tent, uh, then through a temple. And from this, the people, the children of Israel, they're led out of slavery into the wilderness. After murmuring and complaining, God finally allows them to go into the promised land. And you've got to understand, these people are, are kind of a people who are stuck in their ways. A people who kind of just, they, they all, they're often inclined to forget about the ways of God. They forget about the, the laws of God. They forget about how good God is, and so they begin to cry out to God and complain like little children, saying, But we want a king too, because they see all the kings rising up in other kingdoms, and they cry out to God and they say, You know what, God, you are not enough. Give us a king. And what does God do? He gives them a Saul. As his judgment gives them Saul, but then as his grace and mercy, right after Saul, he gives them a David. How long will this last for the kingdom of Israel? not long. The kingdom then is divided and then conquered by the Babylonians. And then they are again, led into captivity, into exile out of their homeland. They reject the way of the law. They reject the way that God is better than a king. They reject all of God and his ways. It, it kind of has a, a, a modern ring to it, does it not? Our way is better than your way, God. Your word is not the final authority, God. My word is the final authority. Your word is not the absolute truth. What is truth to all people? Because we want to be inclusive to everyone. And so we want to create a way that the word of God looks more like culture instead of the word being the ultimate it's funny how time has passed and, and society has, has grown exponentially in technology and all of these things, but yet we have not changed one bit. The church is, in a sense, mimicking the ways of Israel pre-Jesus And so we get to the end of Malachi where the children of Israel, where now they are kind of in this exile moment. They've been rebuilt the temple and and all these things have, have happened. And then prophets come and they tell the children of Israel to repent. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. There will be a judge. There will be this king, a Messiah who is coming. And so if we close the books in Malachi, we can just flip a page and we're right there in the Gospel of Matthew. But it begs for us to ask questions. If you read through the Old Testament and you end at the Old Testament, you've got a lot of questions, don't you? Well, 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 Wait a minute. What happened to the Messiah? Where's the king? What's what's happening with the children of Israel? What happened to that promise that he's going to make all nations? Because right now it just looks like this is a promise for just the Israelites. What happened to God calling people out and to himself? And so it's led up to all of this leading us with these questions. That's why it's so important to read your Old Testament. Because if you if you if you don't if you just read the New Testament, then it's kind of like watching scene two of the play or act two of a play. You're the guy in the audience asking, wait a minute, who is this character? Who is this guy right here? And they're telling you to shut up. You should have watched. The first act. And and if you begin just to read the New Testament, you've got a lot of questions. Well, why is there a man now who is dying for my sins? Why is this now not just for the Israelites, but for all of the Gentiles? So it's important to read this as one narrative. And so now this promise of God calling a people out unto himself is about to come to fulfillment Because now Christ comes into the scene. Christ is then crucified. Christ is buried in a tomb. And he then rises from the dead three days later. And and then he ushers in by the Holy Spirit the age of the church. Holy Spirit breathes down after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And the disciples and, and many men and women are in the upper room. And they come out as bold proclaimers of the message of the gospel. Heralding to culture, you killed Jesus, repent. Very seeker-friendly message, is it not? You murderers, what is wrong with you people? Repent! It should, should caution us not to soften the message of the gospel so much because how the gospel message is so offensive that it was my sins who nailed him upon the cross. It was my sin that he carried and bore on the cross. And realizing this, now I must repent and follow after Christ. So so now Holy Spirit ascends, the church exponentially grows. And now we are sitting in the age of the church. The church comes from the word ecclesia. Jesus uses this in Matthew chapter 16 when he says, I'm building an ecclesia. I'm building a church. Ecclesia is from the Greek word kaleo. It's the verb to call, and then the ek word is the preposition out of. It is the called ones out of. The called ones out of. What are we called out of? That's a good question. Well, we're called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Um, we're we're called out of the world in order that we might take possession of Him. We're called out of the burden of His wrath, called into the mercy and grace of His forgiveness. We're called out of lostness. We're called out of waywardness. We're called out of purposelessness, and we're called into joy, into life with meaning, into a life with him for eternity. That's what we're called into. I don't want to belabor this point, but I must because I'm that guy. In Romans chapter 1, 6, Paul writes to the church of Rome, and he says this. How does he address the Romans? Listen to what he says, Romans 1, 6. And you also are among those who are called to belong To Jesus Christ, what is it then that makes you so distinctive, he says? It is this, that you have been the ones who are called to belong to Christ. There is that same language that we have been called out of the world and called to belong to Christ We've been studying the gospel of Mark, and we we hear this same language. In Mark chapter 3.14, it says, And he called the twelve disciples to be with him, that they might go for him. And so he calls the disciples, he calls the church, and he calls us into him. And it's this call to be in union with Christ. It's a call to faith in Christ. It's a call to endure in Christ. It's a call to relationship with. With Christ, have you heard that call? God, from all eternity, has been calling to himself a people who are his very own. To to further the point in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, he will keep you strong to the end, that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. So we have been called to Christ And as a result of us being called into Christ, we are called into relationship with one another. The Bible, particularly the the New Testament, would overemphasize how our daily walk with Christ, how our growing in Christ is not viewed as something as individualistic, but is viewed as corporate. One more reference. And this one should say, oh, I think I've heard this before. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Have you heard that before? The answer is yes. And it's no if you're not paying attention. Isn't it quite staggering that Peter would use the same language, the same phraseology, not that you Jews are a holy Priesthood, a holy nation, not that the nation of Israel is a holy people it's it's it 's staggering that that Peter, whom himself was a Jew, why would he do this because the light had gone on in peter 's head, and perhaps maybe he 's directly quoting this, and he remembers from Jeremiah, that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh and that he will write his spirit into the hearts who are his own. So Peter says, so you are a chosen people, your royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God in order that you might declare to the praises of him who called you out of darkness, here it is again, into his marvelous light, Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God continues to call out a people. God has called you to be this community of people who are the called out ones. We've been called out of the way of the world into a family, into as a nation, as a, as a kingdom where we have just one king. Now, this is kind of, I don't want to say, well, maybe it is staggering for some of us to kind of understand the weight of what it means to be a part of a kingdom because we don't understand that. We celebrate every July 4th that we're not a part of a monarchy. We're not part of a a monarchy. We are a part of democracy that says we, the people, rule. And you guys should have said amen, you unpatriotic people, you. We don't understand the language of kingdom. We don't understand this language because we are individualistic people. Um, uh, There are both positives and negatives about being here in America. Positive is that we get to enjoy freedom. Positive is that we are the ones who get to empower those who govern and enact laws. Those are positive things. Many people do not have those in other countries. We have endeavor. It's the plus and the positives, but it also carries with it a negative where that it it is It promotes individualism. It promotes isolation. That I don't need anybody at all. It's it's the negative of, you know, I'm my own person. I am my own governing authority. No one tells me what to do. It is from where we get the idea of, who do you think you are judging me? Right? Right? There's no king riding on a horse through downtown Cedar City. And if there would be, we would lock him up immediately. We don't understand this idea, but but, but if you have been called out of and called into the light, then you've been called into a kingdom. Now you are a kingdom citizen. Now... You bow your knee not to yourself. You do not bow your knee to individualism. You now bow your knee to King Jesus. It's a a weighty matter, is it not? Where we celebrate individualism in America, but the Bible denounces individualism. The Bible never promotes isolationism. How you grow in your faith in God is through the corporate body. It is through the church. Now, what does it mean that we are brothers and sisters of this family, that we are a family? Romans 8 would say that we cry, Abba, Father. Who do we say Father to then? So we are a family. We are brothers and sisters. If we were in Georgia, we'd call everybody Brother Greg, Brother Matthew, Sister Taylor. And we think that's so odd, and it is very strange. Never call me Brother Matthew. (laughs) I am your brother, but that does not mean that you have to call me literal brother. And so you think about this in terms of what does it mean to be a part of family. We all have a family, maybe. Or you've had a family, you know a family. Family has great things about it. (coughs) Family also has bad things about it. You love them and hate them. Was that too strong for some of you sanctified people here? You, you go through great mountaintop experiences with your family, and you go through some of the deepest, darkest moments with them also. That is the family of God. Where we are not here just for the mountaintop experiences, but you go through the deepest pits of despair, the church is with you also there. We cry, Abba, Father, because God is our Father. What unites the church, what unites the church, and listen to this very carefully, is that God is our Father and that Jesus is our King that we are a part of a family and that we are citizens of the kingdom of God listen to me that is the thing that unites us it and i want to i want to kick some shins if that's okay what unites us is not our preference and music it is not our preferences and how we do ministry It's not our preferences in how the preacher or the pastors clothe themselves, as long as they are clothed. It is not in whether we are in a movie theater or whether we are in this glorious, beautiful chapel. That is not what unites us. Those are preferences. And if you marry the preferences, you'll destroy the move of God. What unites us then? What can we do? What can I, like, like some of you I've never seen before in my life. Like there's some new faces. If you are a believer in Christ, you are my brother or my sister. What other religion can do that? Or, or, or who can make this happen? That for someone I don't even know that they are my brother or my sister, that's all in due part of the cross of Christ. That because his blood shed for all of us, that those of us who participate in that forgiveness of sins, we are then washed by his blood and we are now citizens of his kingdom. And we are part of his family. This brings us to where we're supposed to be and only have eight minutes to go through this text. So pray. It helps us to understand with this broad picture of God in his divine purpose that from eternity past had a plan to have a people who would be the called out ones. That the plan started with Abraham, continued with Moses, and through the kingdom dynasties and through the prophets. The plan all along was to have a people who were called out for the purpose of God, it is Christ as the head of the body, which we will get into next week. And is this the result of this growth? It is because of what Christ has done. Is call, caused by what God His intent was all along. Now, a few things about the body metaphor, and don't worry, I'm not going to get an anatomy lesson or put things as. Picture graphs for you because that would be disgusting. It's a pretty straightforward picture that he gives us here. There's really no difficulty in understanding it, in my opinion. You read through 12 through the end of this chapter, and he talks about body parts. It's kind of odd. You've got a hand, you've got an eye, you've got an ear, you've got rear ends, you've got feet, you've got toes, you've got fingers, you've got all the things. You recognize that this is just an analogy, but it is exactly how God views the church. In fact, I think it enhances our view of the church. In order to accomplish his work on earth, Jesus had a body. He had a flesh, or he had flesh. In order for him to continue to accomplish his work and ministry on earth, where's Christ at? He's seated by the right hand of the Father. And so now Jesus has a body that consists with you and I, humans, people who have been called out of darkness. How does the invisible God become visible to people? It's, It's a result of the relationship established for those who are in Christ Everyone has a function, and everyone needs to assume your responsibility. So if you're writing down just a few things, I've got three little points, and I'm going to be out of the way in just a moment. Everyone, each part, needs to assume his or her responsibilities in this church. Did you know that the average church has 20% of the people doing 80% of the stuff? That's an American average. That means 20% of the people who attend here are doing the majority, probably maybe less of a percentage here when it comes to serving a ministry. 20% of people are carrying the load to preaching and teaching to your children. 20% are carrying the load when it comes to various types of ministries. It also means that probably 20%, maybe less, of the church is carrying the financial burden of having this thing operate, us being generous to people within our church body. So understand what Paul is saying here is that everyone, if you have been called out, you are a part of this body and you have to assume your responsibility and to see this thing flourish and grow. It is not an option that God gives you. Oh, well, you're not filling it for this season of your life? Well, that's okay. Just take 10 years off. I, don't, I, I couldn't find that verse, I, although I was um, violently looking for it in a period of time of my life, that God would release me for 10 years so that I wouldn't have to do anything. But I couldn't find it. So here's what that means, that even in your trauma, that you still have a responsibility to play in this the responsibility to participate, to take your place, to use your voice and to add your value, to commit yourself and your resources. It's impossible for a church to effectively be who God has called them to be if everyone is not assuming their responsibility. Like some of us, we think, that, you know, our responsibility is insignificant. And so, you really think that your nose should be where your belly button is at all times? You know what I'm saying? You have the Eeyore complex. Nobody likes my gift. Nobody really likes my responsibility that I have. And we sing the anthem of, I guess I'll go eat worms. Do you remember that as a child? No, I didn't actually eat the worms. I just said I would because I felt sorry for myself. Well, you don't know. I'm my role is not significant. You know, I'm just a pinky. I'm just this. You know, I'm just a greeter. Or I'm just a person who is supposed to, you know, uh, welcome people in. Or I'm just a, you know, whatever. You fill in the blank but you have a significance to this. And in order for the church to operate at its capacity, you have to use your gifting. You know, it's, it's kind of like the illustration I've given before. I've never broken a bone in my body. I'm 40 years old. Until I reached the age 37, I was chasing my kids around and my little toe, smacked against a chair, a metal chair, And my toe went, I never thought that toe had any significance. In fact, I thought I could run a marathon without that stupid thing until that dumb joker went crooked on me and broke. Some of you think you're just that little toe, but understand the moment you isolate yourself and you break apart, the body feels it. The church feels it and we grieve over that. You have significance. Secondly, if we assume our responsibilities, then we also need to accept our limitations. Let me say that one more time because we don't hear this. Because we're supposed to be great at everything. We're supposed to be the greatest at X. We're supposed to be the best at my job, best at this, best at everything. I want to wear a hat Uh, That includes all hats. We don't understand this concept of just accept the one good thing that God has given you and also accept the fact that you have limitations. So you're not the greatest at speaking. You're not the greatest at singing. You're not the greatest at being friendly. You should work on that. You're not the greatest at hospitality. You're not the greatest at some of these gifts that God gives us. And, and that's okay. You have to identify what you are great at and assume that responsibility. And what this ought to do for a lot of us is to breathe, right? That means I don't have to do everything in this church. My gift is teaching. That's my gift. And I want to utilize that for the glory of God and for the edification of the church. I don't have gifts in a lot of things. I I just don't. And it took me a while in the pastorate ministry to finally realize, Matthew, you do not have to do everything. Counterculture to what American Christianity has taught us. Oh, the pastor, the senior lead pastor, he does it all. He is a miracle worker. He walks on water at times. He commands the skies to be still. And he is there to wipe my tears and my fanny all at the same time. He is the supreme leader of them all. Now, that is hyperbolic in nature, but it is exactly how the American church has viewed the pastor. We pay him to do a service for us. So the church then is the pimp daddy and the pastor is his hooker <laughs> that is that's just not what the bible teaches i have a responsibility and that's to teach the word of god you also have a responsibility so you have to ask yourself, so what is my responsibility? Is it in compassion? Is it then to to say, I see a need, pastor, or whatever, and I'm going to go meet that need? Then yes. Assume your limitations, that you cannot do it all. And hear me, the church don't need you to do it all either. This is going to come across as yet another bomb. This church will survive with or without you. Whether I'm teaching here or whether somebody else is teaching here, this is God's church. It will not be built on a man. It will not be built on a woman. It will be built on Jesus as the foundation. One more and I'll get out of your way and you could probably leave and scream for joy that I'm finally finished with all of my weird metaphors. This also means that we recognize the role that is given to others within the body, and that goes right along with what I just said. The eye can't say to the head or the hand, I don't need you. You've got two problems that Paul is identifying here, the group that goes around saying, I don't need you, and then the other group that just goes around looking at their navel and says, I don't belong. And Paul identifies both of these two types of people, seemingly like he's snatching them back up, from their coattails and telling them, listen to me. If you're going to go around saying, I don't need you, you're wrong. Because individualism doesn't work in the kingdom of God. And if you're going to go around navel-gazing, saying, I don't belong here, nobody wants to use my gifts, you are wrong. Dig deep into the family of God and get plugged in. Find your gifting. If you're just like there, just waving your hands like, I don't know what my gifting is. Okay, that's fine. Let's find your gifting. And let's let the body of Christ flourish. Let's let the body of Christ expand out of a four-walled theater room and spill itself on the streets of Cedar City so that our city will know Jesus and make him known. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us in all of these things. We know there are no perfect churches because immediately as soon as a person comes in there, it ceased to to become perfect. We know there are no perfect pastors. We know there are no perfect ministries. Thus, I will still say I'm a part of the body of Christ. I pray, God, that we would have a renewal of commitment with each other A renewal of just belonging to each other, that this is more than just me, you know, checking it off on my to do list. Well, I got church out of the way, now I can go live the rest of my life. No, this is who we are. This is not about a building. This is not about what we just do on Sunday. This is your divine purpose.